don't think it would be cool to get a second song from Devo's album Shout mm. onto the show in one month. So that opening monstrosity was Jurisdiction of Love, once again, by Devo. And the song's riff sounds very similar to a song we are about to discuss. So welcome back to This Is Comp, Motown style, where the hosts of Discord and Rhyme talk about compilations and box sets, artist by artist, song by song. We are on Twitter at Discord Pod, and you can get early access to these episodes by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod. Okay, roll call. Rich Bunnell. Mike DeFabio. And John McFerrin. So we are officially back in the Motor City with disc six of the compilation Motown, the complete number ones, covering tracks one through six. I've listened to most of this disc already, and it might honestly might be my favorite disc in the whole set, or at least it's close. Like there are a few really clunkers, but it has an unbelievable number of towering classics and some great songs I was not even aware existed. So yeah, it's it's either the best one or like neck and neck with disc two. Wow. So before we get going, an announcement about this series. So we've been covering Motown number ones on and off for two years now, and uh, we've decided that after we finish disc six, we're going to shelve the series indefinitely so we can focus on some other compilations that we want to do. Disc seven through ten do have some very significant hit singles on them. I'm thinking of um, I'm Coming Out by Diana Ross and Super Freak by Rick James. Somebody's Watching Me by Rockwell. Can't forget that one. Hmm. Uh, but for the most part, it's increasingly diminishing returns from here on out. So like disc eight, as I think I've mentioned before, is literally more than half songs by Lionel Richie and DeBarge. And it's not out of the question for us to revisit this, ser- this series eventually, but we've got some other fun comp ideas that we're very eager to try out and we want to clear the runway. And if I've offended any, De- any DeBarge fans out there, I'm sorry. I'm sure they're great. <laughs> but like I said, disc six is amazing and it starts out with an amazing one. The Miracles are back. They've been completely swallowed up by the disco era, and there was much rejoicing. This is Love Machine. Part one. Part one, excuse me. (laughs) Right, the Miracles of Prague. They had to make a part two because the first part left so many unanswered questions. I didn't know Rick Wakeman was on this song. He is now. <laughs> Rick Wakeman be everywhere. I, I figured that with this particular trio of hosts, we were definitely going to talk about how Love Machine sounds like Roundabout by Yes. Of course. Because it does. So I decided <laughs> to get it out of the way up front. Mm. So chart info. Love Machine came out in October 1975 and it topped the Hot 100 while hitting number five R&B and number three on the UK charts. It was written by Billy Griffin and Warren Moore of The Miracles and produced by Freddie Perrin. So take it away, Mike. So you know how they used to be the Miracles and then they were Smokey Robinson in the Miracles? Well, now they're just the Miracles again. You'll never guess why. <laughs> it's a mystery. That's uh, Billy Griffin on lead vocals, Ronnie White on Yeah Baby vocals, and Bobby Rogers on <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so Love Machine in the songwriting department, it can't possibly compete with 
something like Tears of a Clown or I Second That Emotion. But if you take it on its own terms, it's just pure dumb disco fun. I mean, if, if you can't admit to liking Love Machine, quit being a stuck-up indie rock guy. The lyrics are about being a literal sex robot, and they're as completely ridiculous as that sounds. Like, my voltage regulator cools when I'm sitting next to you, electricity starts to flow, and my indicator starts to glow. Woo! Woo! <laughs> but the thing I like the most about it you probably already figured that out, is how much it sounds like Roundabout. And I know what you're all thinking, but no, I don't think that means Love Machine is prog. What it does mean, however, is that Roundabout is disco. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to discuss this on John's message board. There you go. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for the entire comp, I have to admit. <laughs> like, actually, for a short while, I convinced myself that this was the best song on the entire compilation. <laughs> but after giving it a fresh listen, it's just a little too goofy to be at the yeah. very top with like something like You Can't Hurry Love. Or I was going to say Nowhere to Run, but that's not on this compilation. All that's right. still BS. <laughs> anyway, that that doesn't mean that I've like done a turnaround and don't like Love Machine anymore. It's terrific, but uh, I, I I think like there's a lot of cultural baggage attached to the song, at least like you know from growing up in the '90s, because like there was a period in the '90s where like you know disco sucks was still the dominant narrative about disco among white people, and this was like almost always the song the disco song that got played in the background in like movies, TV shows and commercials to indicate that like, this is a silly disco scene. <laughs> yeah. I, I looked this up and from the late eighties through the early two thousands, this song appeared on the TV shows, full house, Ally McBeal and Futurama, the movies, heavyweights, Donnie Brasco, coyote, ugly, and the new guy, the trailers for the animated films, chicken run and monsters, Inc. And a series of commercials where a mother hen and her chicks danced to the song to advertise Denny's Grand Slam breakfast. <laughs> yeah, the, the song was basically a disco is silly meme in the 90s. Yeah. And, and myself personally, so when I was a teenager, I had a friend on IRC who liked to do like these goofy homemade audio projects, which I, I can't identify with that at all. No. But at the time, he sent me an MP3 of a remake of this song that he did with him doing all of the vocal parts in a deadpan. <laughs> So I always imagine Love Machine in my head as like a full, meticulously arranged chorus of this one 15-year-old white kid from New Jersey. And I, I don't have the MP3 anymore. And even if he kept it, he almost certainly wouldn't let me play it on this podcast. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, what I'm saying is that this is a wonderful song, but th there was a lot of like very silly cultural and personal baggage, uh, like waging a war against it in my mind. But John, what do you think of it? Oh, I love it. Even if I acknowledge that on a certain level, it is very difficult to not treat it as a bit of a novelty song. But, you know, like I can get past that. Like aside from the fact that this is a disco song that manages to crib from both roundabout in the baseline and a little bit from Land of a Thousand Dances in the yes. la 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 part. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This one also has one of the funniest combinations of vocals from a disco song I could think of. Thanks to the regular falsetto vocals getting graced by the hilarious growling and those woo sounds from time to time. And piggybacking off of the earlier mention of Futurama, it is 
impossible for me to think of this song without thinking of the Don't Date Robots PSA from that show. <laughs> Billy, do you want to walk your dog? No, thanks, Mom. I'd rather make out with my own robot. Anyway, th this song is just, it's fun as hell and funny as hell. And I love it every time I hear it. Yeah, it's okay to, to for songs to be ridiculous. Like, that doesn't make them doesn't make them lesser songs. Yeah, I mean, this isn't really far off from something that you would hear from, like, P-Funk, honestly, except, like, purely on a stylistic level. Maybe it's a little more nimble, but they would totally do a song like this thematically. Oh, sure. It would just have more puns and things. All right, guys, it's time for our return to Diana Ross. So what happens when you've spent the night being a love machine? You get a love hangover. Oh. Track two. See what you did there. Mountains on mountains. Once there was. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like disco peeking over the horizon going, Diana, it's time. <laughs> so Love Hangover is another chart topper. This hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and R&B charts and Cashbox. Can't forget Cashbox. And it was written by Marilyn McLeod and lyricist Pamela Sawyer. And it was produced by Hal Davis. And uh, a bit of trivia there. Uh, Marilyn McLeod is Alice Coltrane's sister. Yep. So, hey. Oh. Anyway, John, take it away. <sighs> it was a long and bumpy road in listening <laughs> to all of those mixed quality 70s solo Diana Ross hits to this point. But we did it. We finally reached the disco factory. Hell Yeah. Hal Davis had a strobe light installed into the recording studio to get Ross into the new direction that they felt that she should go. <laughs> and while it apparently took her a little bit of time to adapt, once she bought in, she bought all the way in. The slower initial portion of the track, centered around tense strains and a bass line that's just dripping sex, works as well as it does, largely because Ross's vocal fills the crevices in a way that only somebody with supreme confidence in the material could do. I see what you did the there. <laughs> yeah. The little gasps, the breathy, sultry way she sings the verse, holding back because she knows she can amp up at any time, are a long way from the more controlled deliveries she'd built a reputation for to this point. And I mean this as a compliment. And then, at about a minute ten... The single makes an abrupt shift into the full-fledged disco portion, and the track moves into an entirely different tier for me, becoming one of my absolute favorites in this entire set. Ross mostly becomes less of a featured singer and more of a dominating presence, giving way primarily to the iconic bass and the incredibly striking cymbals, mostly emerging primarily with thought fragments like, 
I don't need no cure. And if there's a cure for this, I don't want it. Like much of the best that disco can offer, Love Hanover isn't so much listened to in a typical manner as it is experienced. And Love Hanover, even in the edited version on this set, is one hell of an experience. Now, a couple of relevant bits of pop culture miscellany uh, demand that I mention them here. First, the initial song portion of Love Hanover featured heavily in the promotional lead-up to the final season of Mad Men, which finished in 2015. Now, given that this song came out in 1976, and the show's pretty strict rules to that point of keeping the soundtrack contemporary to the events of the show, this actually prompted a good amount of speculation at the time that the show would jump forward considerably in its timeline from the late 1960s to more contemporary with this song. Uh, but instead, the show only moved forward to 1970. And second, during the full-fledged disco portion, Ross at one point sings the iconic lines, Don't call my doctor, don't call my mama, don't call my preacher, no, I don't need it. Don't call the doctor, don't call the mama, don't call the preacher, possible homage to this verse appeared almost 30 years later in a most unlikely place. Don't call your mother! Don't call your priest! Don't call your doctor! Call the police! You bring the John is doing some motorhead speed head banging. Yep. That was from the Ween track, It's Going to Be a Long Night, the kickoff to the 2003 album Quebec which otherwise sounds absolutely not one bit like this track. I generally don't know if Dean wrote these lines as a deliberate nod to Love Hanover, but at minimum, I have to assume they are bouncing around his subconscious. I do like to think that we've uh, we've made the connection between Ween and a lot of things, and uh, adding Diana Ross to the list is a good coup right there. Ween are the link between Diana Ross and Motorhead. Yes. So what do you think of Love Hangover, Mike? Well, I'm, I'm not going to gush over it to quite the same degree as, as John did, but I... It sure is great to hear Diana Ross getting her solo career on track finally. Yeah. You know, with with the her solo material we've heard so far, you know, she was she was professional with it. But uh you can really tell uh you know when she's when she's working with material that she actually enjoys and can get into. There's a video I I just uh found of uh Diana Ross performing Love Hangover on uh the Midnight Special. And she's just beaming through the whole thing. And that's, I mean, part of that is just that's her stage face. But you can tell just how into it she is. And by the end of the song, she has turned the entire stage into a discotheque. Also, as a as an example of this song's influence, I, I have a clip here of a, a track by uh, Giorgio Moroder, uh, our, our friend, our, our Italian disco friend from the Daft Punk episode. This is from a song of his from 1979 called uh, I Wanna Rock You. Rock you. 
there was also the part of that clip that we just played of Love Hangover where they're singing Love to Love You in the background. Oh. And there's like there's obviously there's Love to Love You, Baby by Donna Summer produced by Giorgio Moroder. So it's all one yeah. big disco ecosystem of loving. It all comes full circle. Yeah. So I think I have a stranger comparison than John's to motor, to Ween. Uh, so I almost certainly wouldn't have thought of this if Love Machine hadn't already gotten me thinking about Yes. Uh, but the transition to the fast part, especially Diana Ross's vocals on Over, it reminds me of the transition in I've Seen All Good People. Now, once again, I'm not saying that Love Hangover is Prague, so our co-host Ben Marlin sitting at home can stop quaking in his boots. Don't worry, Ben. It's all going to be okay. (laughs) I don't think there's any literal connection between these two songs, but it's just one of those moments for me that speaks to music as this wonderful universal language. And uh, I, I love that I have this podcast to help make these crazy connections. Yeah, it's all one big thing. Um, and on a less philosophical note, this song has been sampled like crazy. And according to whosampled.com, it's been sampled 96 times, and I've brought clips of a couple of notable examples. Uh, the most famous one is probably Monica's 1998 hit single, The First Night, which topped the U.S. Billboard charts. And the second one that I brought is from Will Smith's hit Freakin' It, released in 2000, right around the dawn of the Willennium. I'm about to break this, full out the king of the hill, big will, keeping it real, knees in the grill, the whole set on lockdown, making you flock down to where I'm at, to hit my rap, I be that cat that set trends, where y'all at, on the corner with your friends, heard you screaming about cream in your rap kit, yo, my last check for Wild Wild West came on a flatbed. And about Wild Wild West, more on that later on the next episode. <laughs> okay, we've gotten over our hangover, let's move on to Marvin Gaye with the song, I Want You. was released in March 1976 on the album of the same name, and the song hit number one R&B and number 15 Hot 100. Number one that week was Silly Love Songs by Wings. Woo! And what's wrong with that, I'd like to know? There you go again, Mike. 
And I Want You was written by Leon Ware and Arthur T-Boy Ross, Diana's younger brother. And it was produced by Leon Ware and Marvin Gaye. All right. So this song was originally supposed to belong to a Leon Ware album called Musical Massage. Barry Gordy, after listening to an early in-progress version of the Ware album, asked Ware to give some of his songs to Gay, who had been having trouble coming up with new material after the mega success of Let's Get It On. Gay liked this song in particular, and the ensuing album, with this as the title track, consisted entirely of tracks where Ware provided co-writing credits. Now, this is kind of an odd track for Marvin Gaye based on what he had done to this point, but I really enjoy it. In one of the recent This Is Comp episodes where I helped cover Now That's What I Call Music Volume 1, I mentioned that one of the more difficult approaches to making pop music is when the performer tries to hover in a middle ground where they're not quite emphasizing memorability and where they're not quite emphasizing atmosphere. And that while making good or great music in this vein is certainly possible, the potential downside of such an approach is horrendous. Well, Marvin Gaye is one of those performers who I absolutely trust in taking this approach. The music-making equivalent of a circus high-wire act without a safety net. And this is a great example of how well this approach can work in the right hands. Marvin Gaye never felt especially comfortable with disco. And in fact, the next track from him that will get covered in this series, Got to Give It Up from 1977, can almost be thought of as a deliberate parody of disco as a genre. For now, though, this track incorporates disco elements into the more traditional soul and funk aspects that Gay was most comfortable with, as well as some elements of gospel in the coda and doo-wop in the backing vocals. And this mix is absolutely magical. It's worth noting that this song joins Revolution by the Beatles in the list of famous songs in which the vocalist sings while laying on their back. Though while Lennon sang while laying on the studio floor, Gay saying I want you while laying back on his couch. This gives the song a fascinating laid back feel that is yet one more element to its credit. Yeah, I just want to stump for the album I Want You, which I only listened to for the first time relatively recently, because it it doesn't get the same level of attention and adulation as what's going on and let's get it on. But honestly, for my money, it's every well, it's 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 at least very nearly as good as those albums, possibly their equal. Uh, It's got After the Dance on it. Uh, It's got Soon I'll Be Loving You Again, which I actually first knew from a Jay-Z sample. And it's got this song, which is just this like gorgeous tapestry of Marvin Gaye duetting with himself, which he's just so good at doing. So uh, that's the main thing I wanted to say is if that album is not on your radar, it really should be because it's great. Yeah, this is fantastic. It's you don't hear it nearly as much as what's going on or let's get it on. But you should. It it should be as known as those songs. It's not as, I guess, catchy as either of those, but it's oh, it's so well done. It's a a really good example of uh, music production that goes beyond making all the instruments sound good and into the realm of art. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, this is the arrangement here and and where everything is placed and, and why it's there. I mean, it's, it's, I would call it symphonic. There are long stretches of this song where there's not really a lead vocal. It's just kind of all these layers that add up to the song. And sometimes, you know, sometimes a, a bit of vocal will come up to the top, but mostly it's, you know, these layers of vocals kind of, 
you know, trading off each other. And I, I love all the all the elements of the song. There's a there's a distorted fuzz guitar that shouldn't be in a song this smooth, but it works. It's it was all just so thought over and it should be this should be. Uh, well, I don't want to say it deserves to be as overplayed as let's get it on because that, that <laughs> song is that song's kind of tough to appreciate now because it's you know been treated as such a joke but it's this should be this should be heard more often yeah and just to underline how special marvin gay really was uh, i want to play a couple of covers of this song that kind of uh, dramatically missed the point <laughs> so the first one is from 1995 and it's a collaboration between madonna and massive attack hmm. oh no There's no life in this song. Yeah. Yeah. And the second is by a guy we've heard a few times before who just loves to do Motown covers, and it's not Paul Young. Uh-oh. See it, baby. See it, baby. See it, baby. John, you look so sad. <laughs> this is a shame. That was, of course, Michael McDonald. Uh, the reason I played these was first to kill the mood and second to show that you can like you can keep the musical core of this of I Want You intact and just still completely misfire because Marvin Gaye is he's just the magic element that ties it all together. It's he's yeah. so hard to replicate. Like I said, you can you can make music like this work, but it's such there's such a far downside. It's you, there's such a narrow path to making it work. And you just like veer a little bit to the left, veer a little to the right, and you just get mushy, formless glop. All right. Well, for a case study in mushy, formless glop, yeah. <laughs> let's move on to track four. This is Just to Be Close to You by The Commodores. Excuse me. I mean Commodores. Some Commodores. Oh, girl, then you, then you came into my life. You made my jagged edges smooth. You made my, you made my direction so clear and you. Oh, woman, you became my purpose, my reason for living, girl. You see, you're my heart, you're my soul, you're my strong inspiration, baby. Oh, that's why I'm standing here singing and opening my arms to you. I want to say, child, why don't you take my hand? Oh, we'll live in love. do birds suddenly appear <laughs> so just to be close to you was released in august 1976 and it topped the r&b charts and hit number seven hot 100 under tonight's the night parentheses gonna be all right by the patron saint of this series rod stewart let your inhibitions run wild this is like the same song so uh, Just To Be Close To You was written by Lionel Richie, who also does lead vocals, and production credit went to the whole band. So I scoured the internet to figure out the popular consensus on this song, and 
Everyone seems to adore it. It's one of, and it's one of Lionel Richie's personal favorite songs he's ever written. He still performs it at his own solo shows to this day. But I'm just not into this. It sounds really like drippy and goofy to me. Like uh, I have this song's parent album, Hot on the Tracks, on LP, and it honestly might be my least favorite song on the entire album. And uh, I have to admit that this is probably in part a reflection of my own cultural biases as a white California boy. And because uh, I found a blog post that observed that Lionel Richie is putting on like an affectation of a Southern Bible Belt preacher here, which was uh, part of his own upbringing in Alabama, but is like completely removed from my own life experience. But as much as I admit to these biases, I can't intellectualize my way into enjoying a song, and I still don't care for Just To Be Close To You. Uh, but it clearly resonates with a lot of people, so I'm not challenging this song's place in soul music or slagging anyone's taste who likes it. It's just not my thing. Is it either of yours? Nope. No. <laughs> John, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't like this at all. Um, I like early Commodore's tracks when they're snappy and upbeat, but... This kind of mushy and formless orchestrated synth ballad has almost no chance to appeal to me. And some of the aspects of Richie's delivery almost feel to me like a Zappa-esque parody of contemporary pop ballads. <laughs> well, And maybe if this song had gone all in that direction, I might have found something more enjoyable about it. Maybe if Flo and Eddie were on it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But as is, pass. It's not exactly Brick House, is it? No, you know what? Brick House is not on this compilation. No. Uh, there are like nine or ten Commodore songs, and none of them are Brick House. I'm starting to question the the whole concept behind this <laughs> behind this box. Yeah, and on disc ten, there are like so many boys to men songs, and none of them are Motown Philly. It's it is just it, <laughs> none of this makes sense. It doesn't make sense. I mean, this isn't even easy. I mean, I I like easy like Sunday morning, uh, but I'd 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 put it on the same level as say still, which is to say I don't like it at all, and. Uh, I love old school analog synthesizers, you know, as much as anybody. We, we know this. This has been well established. But you've got to. These are like Captain and Tennille synths or something. Yeah. It's like what could have gone wrong if Stevie Wonder's mid 70s work hadn't been made by Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Like uh, <laughs> if you've if you've got if you've got a Moog, that's that's not enough. You got to know what to do with it. And I think in order to to wash the taste of this song out of our mouths, uh, we should have a clip here of the drum break from the assembly line. That's more like it. Yeah, I clipped this back on disc five, too, but I'm always happy to hear it again. <laughs> it's one of those drum breaks that launched like dozens and dozens of hip hop tracks. You can't hear it too many times. All right. Well, we're done with that one. <laughs> Woo. So the originals are back. If you remember them from disc three, this is down to love town.
Down to Love Town was released in 1976 on the album Communique. It topped the disco and dance charts and hit number 93 R&B and number 47 Hot, Hot 100. Once again, under Tonight's the Night, Gonna Be All Right by our man Rod. It was the same week. It was written by Don Daniels, Michael Sutton, Kathy Wakefield, and it was produced by Frank Wilson and Michael Sutton. So we last heard from the originals on their 1969 single, Baby, I'm For Real, way back on disc three. Baby, baby. You don't understand How much I love you, baby And how much I want to be your only they had a surprisingly complicated origin story, and you can hear the whole tale if you listen to the first episode in our Disc 3 series. But to recap the most important points, they started out at Motown as session vocalists who sang on hit singles including Jimmy Ruffin's What Becomes of the Broken Hearted and Stevie Wonder's For Once in My Life. Their 60s lineup consisted of bass singer Freddie Gorman, baritone Walter Gaines, and tenors C.P. Spencer and Hank Dixon. And the only difference on Down to Love Town is that by this point, C.P. Spencer had left to pursue a solo career and had been replaced by Ty Hunter. Otherwise, they're the same. So Down to Love Town is historically important for Motown because it was the label's first 12-inch single. Ooh. And what is a 12-inch single? Well, in the mid-70s, disco songs were getting longer and the arrangements were getting bigger and broader, so the vinyl single format had to adapt to keep up with this trend. 12-inch singles were cut at 45 RPM with wider grooves, which gave the songs more room to build and breathe, and the songs could extend well beyond seven minutes, giving people more time on the dance floor. In fact, the 12-inch single is so closely tied to disco that they were originally called disco discs, but they still stuck around well into the digital era because they were like just really popular with electronic musicians. So what I'm saying is that Down to Love Town came at a pivot point for music where dance music started to go really big and epic. And so I'm going to take a deep breath and go through the session musicians on this song. So we have James Jamerson Jr. on bass. Not James Jamerson. He was gone by this point. This is his son. Uh, John Barnes on keyboards. Eddie Bongo Brown and King Erickson on congas. That's right. Two conga players. Alvin Taylor and Jeff Porcaro on drums. And Jeff Porcaro was later the drummer for Toto, by the way. And six guitarists, including Billy Cooper, Weldon Dan Parks, Jay Graydon, Melvin Wawa Reagan, Stephen Beckmeyer, and Ray Parker Jr. Yes, Ray Parker Jr. of Ghostbusters fame. Uh, he was a very prolific session guitarist. Uh, huh. Yeah, this song is like a miniature symphony orchestra, and combined with the original's classic Motown vocals, it's a great example of like the sheer power a song could harness in the disco era. Like, this isn't a particularly innovative disco song, but I just love listening to it. I love this arrangement. I love it so much. See... As my perspective has shifted over the years from feeling neutral at best towards disco uh, to feeling like it was a net positive, one of the major reasons for this has been that I've consistently found that the format provides an excellent foundation for people to do creative things with strings and horns. And this one is yes. a top-notch example. That opening string part in particular is amazing. 
But there's just so much life and zest in the strains throughout that I can't help but get sucked into the first part of the song overall. And then that guitar and bass and percussion groove in the second half with the strains easing their way back in with about 90 seconds left before the vocals come back. Well, that's just a perfect sound for me to lose myself in. Yeah, I adore this. Yeah, I like this a lot. Uh, like Rich said, uh, it's not, in, in one sense, there's not anything that special or unique about it, but it does what it does so well. Uh, it's it's a, just a really great example of a, a fun disco song. It makes you, makes you want to dust off your happy shoes. And while we're on the subject of, of uh, the originals, I don't think I was on the episode where we talked about them before. So uh, I just I just want to give a mention to uh, a song of theirs that they recorded in 1966, which never got released, uh, called Suspicion. But now I know the laws of love. No, I can never hurt you love. Suspicion in your heart. I love suspicions keeping my Oh, this is nice. Yeah. Wow, thanks for bringing that to my attention. It, it didn't occur to me to check out the originals any further, I have to admit. Yeah, this this is one, th- that's a song I just ran across on a, a Northern Soul compilation. Um, and it's, like I said, it was never released officially. It just became uh, this this big hit in the, the Northern Soul scene in England, uh, just on the basis of bootleg copies of it. It never charted because it was never released. But eh, if it had been, maybe it'd be on here. All right, well, let's close out this set. This is Thelma Houston with Don't Leave Me This Way. topped the U.S. Hot 100 R&B and dance charts, and it hit number 13 in the U.K. It was produced by Hal Davis and originally written by Carrie Gilbert, Kenneth Gamble, and Leon Huff, and they were a trio who played a huge role in developing the sound of Philly soul. So Thelma Houston's career began in the late 60s, but uh, until Don't Leave Me This Way hit number one, her biggest hit was a song called You've Been Doing Wrong For So Long that peaked at number 64 on the R&B chart. Uh, Don't Leave Me This Way had originally been recorded by Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes in 1975. Don't leave me this way 
clear why Thelma Houston's cover was the one that got everybody on the dance floor. I got to say, I prefer the original here. Uh, I think the Philly soul arrangement just fits the song better. It's, it's bordering on disco. Uh, it's just, I, I, I don't want to slag off uh, on Thelma Houston's vocal on this version, but Teddy Pendergrass just sings the hell out of it. Thelma Houston's version, at least for the first half sounds to me more like a ballad with a disco beat on top, which is just not my favorite kind of disco song. Although I certainly like it much, much more than, for instance, I Will Survive, which I could never stand. I know I'm not, I'm, I know I'm on the losing side there. Uh, for me, the best part of this version is the back half where the main song part goes away and we go to Clavinet Heaven. always up for a good faced clavinet yeah uh, astute discord and rhyme listeners might remember that we have actually clipped this song before in one of our main episodes because rizza sampled a random snippet of it for jizza's labels and made it sound like a nightmare and if you ain't wrong the mic you couldn't hurt a beat that's like going to venus driving the mercury the cat of this rugged slang is wu-tang with the unpredictable talent natural game that's it in the background, right? Yeah, it's just that. Yeah, this was one of those cases where I'd heard the song all over the place. So don't leave me this way. But I didn't know it by artist or name. And then the chorus hit and made me go, oh, that song. And this is all despite the fact that I hosted that Jizza episode that Mike just talked about, which meant that I definitely researched <laughs> that song. But this whole podcast can be a real blur sometimes. But uh, yeah, this song is wonderful. And and, and that's funny, Mike, uh, with your, you're talking about like a, not preferring the like kind of ballady over a beat type of disco. I hadn't really thought about what types of disco I value over other types, but I actually think that that's my preferred style of disco personally. It's it's classic dance crying. It's, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I know that that's a term that gets thrown around to describe a lot of current dance music, but like dance crying has been around for as long as there's been dancing or as long as there's been crying, whichever came first. And I, I'm always here for it. I, yeah, I've just never been into the whole, I'm sad that I'm dancing. Oh, well, well I'll, I'll get into more of this in a second. But I mean, I think that goes back to like, you know, dance music and disco music, like being like a haven for like marginalized communities who were like, you know, it, it was like a safe place for them. And, you mm -hmm. know, they were they were sad and dancing a lot of the time and it was reflected in the music. Yeah. So, John, what do you think of this one? So every time I listen to this one, even though I know exactly how it's going to go. I find that my gut reaction to it goes through a very specific journey. I start out thinking this is going to be kind of quiet and dull. And then the underlying beat starts to pick up and the strains ramp up a bit and my shoulders start moving a bit. And then the first chorus comes in and I realize I'm caught in the early stages of a disco nuclear explosion <laughs> that's going to consume everything in its path. You know, Mike mentioned that there's a, a clavinet that comes in at about the three-minute mark that sounds in the moment like one of the coolest things that ever happened. <laughs> and the way it battles with the other instruments and Thelma's voice, 
the rest of the way makes this track into something that I can't help but adore. Now, could this have been better if it had stayed with Diana Ross, as was originally planned? I don't know, maybe. But at the same time, I'm glad for Houston that the universe gave her something really iconic after she lost the vastly inferior theme from Mahogany to Ross earlier in the year. Sometimes things work out for the best in unexpected ways. And I also have a cover to play of this from 1986 by the British synth-pop duo The Communards. Yeah, so it doesn't hold a candle to the Thelma Houston version or the uh, or the Teddy Pendergrass one for that matter. But I thought it was worth playing because while it just barely dented the top 40 in the U.S., uh, their version topped the U.K. charts for four weeks and was the top-selling U.K. single of the year. So this might actually be the more recognizable version for some of our British listeners. And another reason I bring this cover up is related to what I was talking about earlier about like, you know, disco and dance music being kind of a refuge because uh, the communards, Jimmy Somerville and Richard Coles, they were both gay. And by the mid 80s, the song had taken on kind of an added resonance as an anthem for gay male communities in the West during the AIDS epidemic. And I'll put a link in the show description to an episode of the BBC Radio 4 series Soul Music, where Richard Coles talks about his own experiences in the 80s and how a lot of people found solace and kind of the longing and sadness of this song. But I think that that brings us to the end of this set. So join us next episode for more of the best songs ever written, including a couple by Stevie Wonder that we've already talked about before, but who cares? Let's talk about them again. And there will also be a very surprising appearance by Faith No More. But to be continued... Do you call this record with all these songs? This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is. Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, the back office of the Discord and Rhyme Discotheque. You can find back episodes of this series, as well as our regular album-focused episodes at discordpod.com, and you can also subscribe to Discord and Rhyme on your podcast app of choice. The opening theme music for this series is The Motown Song by Rod Stewart featuring The Temptations. The closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and is based on This Is Pop by XTC, originally written by Andy Partridge. You can hear Ken's music at bandcamp.com. Editing and production is by me, Rich Bunnell. We'll be back with more Motown soon, and in the meantime, keep as cool as you can. Don't date robots! Brought to you by... The Space Pope.